This is the Enneagram 8 Podcast, and we're here to take you inside the armor. Hi. <laughs> A precocious kid. You asked what subliminal advertising was when you were five, but you were a thoughtful kid, a loving kid, selfish kid, and a happy kid. Yeah. Best traits, joyful, happy, confident, uh, brave, um, loving, funny. Thinking back to Aaron as a child, uh, what I do remember is Aaron was always the one organizing everything for me. Uh, my birthday parties. She gave me a very unfortunate haircut. I think gave me bangs, a look I'm still trying to recover from. She also taught me how to swim and how to ride a bike. And when I fell out of a tree when I was eight years old, she was the one that came over and asked me a whole bunch of questions to make sure I didn't go unconscious and then instructed my mom to call 911 um, and really orchestrated the whole thing. I had the best childhood. And when I think about that childhood, I think about the Millers, in particular, Johanna. As a kid, she was adventurous, stubborn, fun, determined. I always knew that whatever we were going to do was going to be a little bit crazy, maybe not allowed, but it was going to be fun, and I was going to be safe and protected by her. I can still remember her giggle. Best traits? Loyal. Very, very, very loyal. Also, giggly, loved to laugh. We laughed so much. As a kid, I suppose worst traits would have been selfish. She wanted to do what she wanted to do. However, I was a good partner for her in that time because I was willing to do whatever she wanted to do. Hi, welcome back. Hi, everyone. I want the snow so badly. It's got to be plus, you know, 15 or minus 5 and snowing. I don't want anything in between. Zero to minus 5, we get the snow. That's my favorite snow Mm because it's big and thick and Mm -hmm. the world turns like magic. Totally. Uh, So what happened this week for you? Well, my sister is pregnant. She should have a baby any minute. (laughs) Literally. I went over because she was having tightness in her stomach. And I went up to the baby room, which to my horror, it was full of packing boxes. (laughs) I was like... where's the baby stuff so I spent the last two days um yeah overdoing it and I there is now a baby room and the dresser's built and the crib is built and it's all done and I'll probably need to sleep for the next three days but (laughs) whatever when I when I walked in Erin was lying flat out on her back on the couch (laughs) under a huge blanket I was like this is weird what is happening (laughs) the world is upside down right now I ran after Ellie all week that's gonna be the theme Y'all are just going to hear me chasing my insane toddler. That's a big job. All day, every day. My job is to keep her alive and well, which is a noble job. (laughs) Someone has to do it. (laughs) So today is the next step in the chain along the uh, uh, effort to unpack Enneagram as a system and kind of make it our own. And so we talked about ego last week. And so we've got to deal with our childhoods because that's when our ego became entrenched. And it's important. Eights don't often look back. That isn't a default for us. We tend to look forward or at the very least be very much rooted to the present. So looking back though is essential because we need to figure out how we got here. We're going to um, start to talk a little bit about how our brains formed and what shaped us and why we ended up following those ego ruts that we did. And hopefully it will 
lead to you guys questioning things and going back and looking at your own childhoods, maybe talking to your mom and dad and siblings and asking more questions. And um, it'll be really insightful. I guarantee it. It's painful, though. Mm-hmm. But it is important. I think we have to unpack all this to get to the good stuff, though, because if we don't unpack it, we just live numb and unaware. Mm-hmm. Agreed. I have these diaries that I um, have kept since I was 10 years old, and I went back over one of them, and I pulled out any of the bits that jumped out at me as very, very eight. So there was a journal that I had to write directly to my teacher as part of our English study. We had to basically write a diary that the teacher would read. And that's what makes this funny because I was so friggin' transparent. (laughs) So this particular teacher had taken us on a museum trip. And this is what I wrote in my diary. I said, I really did not like that visit to the museum. I give it a two out of 10. (laughs) Only the end was good. Because museums are so boring. They don't Just move fast so enough. funny. <laughs> like, I guarantee you 99% of the class fawned over the experience and told her she had put together a great <laughs> trip. And here I was giving it a 2 out of 10. Um, and then the, in the same diary, I wrote, I'm not going to school on the last Monday. Why is the last day on a Monday? I mean, if you ask me, I say it's dumb. And I capitalize D-U-M-B. <laughs> She must have really enjoyed reading my diary. So other things I wrote was, my New Year's resolution is to stop being mouthy to my parents. (laughs) Pretty classic. That was a reoccurring issue with me. And then I wrote, after school, my friend Jenny came over. We had a few fights, but that didn't matter. (laughs) Fights were no big. No biggie. (laughs) Today, I found out that Michael and Chris and Colin and JP like me. And two of them want to ask me to the dance, but I'm just going to ignore them. (laughs) And then the last thing I pulled out was at lunch recess, all the girls in my class started chasing the boys. And then the girls started fighting with the boys. And whenever a girl was in trouble, another girl would come and defend her. And at the end, Patrick said, boy, Joe, you're strong. (laughs) I think we can see where my identity was rooted. That's for sure. Anyway, if any of you have diaries from those younger years, they're pretty precious and they're pretty valuable in looking back and seeing really not much has changed. I mean, we are the same people we were, like we've matured and grown, but the roots go pretty deep and it starts really, really young. We're actually going to talk about that. So how do we even become eights to begin with? Do you have any uh, thoughts from all of your reading and understanding of the Enneagram as to how type is formed. What's your understanding of that? I think we're created the way we are on purpose. doesn't mean we use it well, but (laughs) I think we are who we are on purpose. I think it's really important that I believe that because otherwise we're not designed the way we are and we're always trying to change ourselves. And while we're trying to do a lot of self-work and and we are trying to change ourselves, but we're trying to better ourselves or become more self-aware so that we can react with the world at least for me, in a more gentle, understanding way. I want to know that the qualities that I have are beneficial and valued. Mm -hmm. We actually had brains that were uniquely designed. And again, this is partly from what I've been learning from Jerome Loba, but also just from foster care training about neuroscience, is that I really believe that people who would identify as eights, we live out of the brainstem, first and foremost, which is that fight center. 
it's the willingness to engage and move towards conflict because we subconsciously believe that moving towards is always the safer option than retreating and withdrawing. Our body is telling us that to move towards and to engage is safer, whereas other types might truly believe in their body that to withdraw and kind of disappear and self-efface is the safer thing. But I really believe that our little eight brains always had that kind of instinctive forward moving, move towards thing going on, and that we're born living out of that home base in our brains, and that the ruts and grooves of that get entrenched deeper and deeper as everything that happens to us starts to reinforce that. And our reactions follow similar patterns, right? It just becomes a way of being. Well, we get what we need by doing those things. For sure. Yeah, it's like... um maybe confirmation bias, but we learn again and again that to withdraw, well, no one fought for us. And yet moving towards means that we got what we wanted in the end, or or we staved off the fear, or we fought off the bully, or whatever it is. It, it becomes something that gets confirmed based on experiences that happen over and over and over again. Whether those are objectively true is another matter. We've talked about this before, but the ruts and grooves of moving against and following that part of our type went deeper, faster for me in childhood than they did for Aaron. And that's because um, frequency and the longevity of different traumas affects how stuck you become in your ego type and whatnot. It affects your neural pathways. And as we talked about for the first three years of life, it's very likely that I was neglected on and off by a mom who was struggling with alcoholism. And so I probably screamed my lungs out. And I've heard stories about this as a baby saying, Mm -hmm. pick me up, pick me up, see me, see me. And so there I was moving towards what I wanted with the only thing I had, which was my lungs or whatever it was I used. And and it wasn't met probably, right? right? Over and over again. And so of course I learned really, really early to go get what I want myself, right? And yep. to um, push back on, yeah, to make stuff happen, right? Makes sense to me. Also, even as a little girl, I was part of a church where I was given the message in various ways that my way of being was also not okay. So those grooves went really deep as well, where I pushed back on that. All In all sorts of ways, I pushed back on it, even as a little girl. Um, when I was younger, it was less overt pushing, and it was more just refusing to conform. But it amounted to the same thing. It's so interesting to me how different we were as young kids. I think just with recent family stuff and discussions with my mom over the last 10 years, there was, you know, stuff with her and my dad that happened in those first two years that I was not aware of, but completely puts puzzle pieces together for me for why I kind of act the way I do at times. Or So, yeah, I don't remember it, but now it all makes sense. Kind of sort of the same thing as you and your mom, like you don't you don't remember it. But and then both of us having really, really good, strong, loving families growing up. But those first two years or three years are really they set the pattern. Yeah, they set the pattern. And yeah, they say the first three years of life, which is what is particularly sad about my situation, because it, it was yeah. three exact years before she got sober. Mm-hmm. An important thing that we need to ask ourselves, knowing the way brains work, 
specifically for AIDS, Jerome Lubba asks us to ask ourselves this, is do we know the difference between discomfort and trauma? And that is a big deal because AIDS become comfortable putting themselves in harm's way. Yeah, It's like our currency is we can handle the discomfort. And so we will step into things very young that, that we're supposed to be stepped into by our adults in our life or yeah, someone who isn't us, basically. And it becomes more and more part of our identity to do that, to sit with the discomfort and the unsafe situation because we feel like we can handle it. When what happens, if we're not careful, is it becomes trauma, Yeah. right? You can step into situations that your mind tells you somehow you can handle, but your body knows it can't actually handle. So no wonder so many of us eights have bodies that are now falling apart. Right. I also think, too, that we think that something really, really big has to blow up for trauma. And what I think we we miss, and especially us eights, is it can be the smallest thing. I think the way we define trauma is very different than other types, right? It has to be a lot bigger for us to feel it or see it as trauma. I was listening to a podcast the other day, and he was talking to a woman who had experienced childhood trauma. And her childhood trauma was that the teacher had yelled at her for not speaking up loud enough and put her in a corner. And I was shocked that that was trauma. I know. I heard that one. I had a hard time relating. I was like, are you kidding me? I feel like trauma is whatever has sat with you and and not moved. Like whatever has altered your state of being safe. And, And she talks about how her whole kind of world changed after that. This kid who was kind of brave and bold to stand up for herself and, and then ask again. I, I put out a little note the other day that said, my greatest fear is actually risking holding my heart out between us. And you leave it dangling yeah. there. You say no thanks. You turn fears. away. Right. And so I think we all feel that. So that's our version. Right. So for us, capital T trauma for us would be to hold our heart out and have it be completely rejected and it's happened to us and so it we know has how it happened. feels and it yep. was trauma yep and in our yeah. little little bodies like little six-year-old selves we held our heart out in all sorts of different ways we yeah. would have held our heart out more freely at that age actually yeah. which meant there would have been a bunch of little traumas that happened right. that build up to one big picture of "Ooh, i probably shouldn't do that anymore <laughs> Which brings us to a really important concept that I've just been learning about this year. So it's a something called object relations, and it talks about another set of triads that we aren't used to talking about. Eight, two, and five fall into a triad called the rejection triad. And I'm just going to read the definition. So it says, eights reject their own needs, especially their emotional vulnerable side, The eight only has one gift left to prevent further rejection, her strength and her will. Eights believe in their power and know that others can turn to them for strength and leadership. Eights expect to be rejected, but because they're so tough, they give the appearance of being able to handle it. So we talked about that self-forgetting thing a while ago. And I think this this is the only way I can really relate to that. Well, we don't self-forget. Forget is the wrong word for eights. We don't self-forget. We choose we to deny. We choose to deny our emotions yeah. and soft feelings and, and whatnot. Needs. Yeah. yeah, and there is an assumption that we are not going to be understood or held because we're the only ones that can really hold our own selves. Right? That's been what our experience seems to be. So I don't feel like I feel that rejection or that fear that people won't hold it, but I think 
maybe indirectly I do because I don't offer it the same either. And maybe that's the fear, right? Yes. We, we don't even give people the opportunity yeah, to reject true. because we move first. <laughs> we move first. We, we play the pawns in such a way that we're hedged about. So we don't even ever get the chance to be rejected. Right. Um, that's where we can self delude in a way where we think we're being very brave and bold with our hearts. But the truth is we're just orchestrating things in such a way that we're ourselves. not really, no, we're just doing the it potential for rejection isn't even there. Yeah. It's yeah. not truly, truly there. One of the most important things I heard on this came from Big Hormone Enneagram. And they talked about how when you're a little one, a baby even, there's two primary functions that are at play inside us. One is the nurturing function, which takes care of our hearts, our emotional needs, our attachment, all that good stuff. And then the next is our security and uh, protection. So we'll call it the protective function. So you've got your nurturing function and the protective function. And parents are responsible for providing both for babies because babies need to be kept physically safe and secure and their little hearts need to know that they're attached and connected. So the theory of eights is this. We, when we were little, held out our hearts looking for connection and didn't find it. We didn't find it in our mom, our dad, our community, our family. It might have happened really young. It might have happened along the way somewhere. As we talked about with me, it would have happened right away. And what happens is we subconsciously decide to amputate that function. So eights amputate the nurturing function because it hurts way too much to have it not be met over and over and over again. And we over identify with the security protective function. We become that function. So all of a sudden, little tiny eights become knights in armor and becomes the thing that we offer people. We offer you protection and security because we are protection and security. And it's a trade we make. We trade that to feel connected with you. We never offer you our heart. That's not even on the table because we amputated our heart a long time ago. Mm -hmm. We offer you the only thing we have left, which is our protection, our strength, right? And that's just so sad to our think about. Solving. No, so we walk <laughs> around the world half a person. Yeah. And this is very important to hear in light of the work we've been doing around twos and the tricky relationships we can have with them. They are our exact opposite. So when they were babies, they were looking for the security function and they were looking for the nurturing function and they felt that they weren't protected. So they amputated that and they over-identified with nurturing. So they walk around in the world going, have my heart, have my heart, have my heart. I want your heart. And it's a trade they make. And in return, they go, make me feel safe. Am I yours? Right? And so if right. you think about it, we're each other's missing halves. And that's pretty sobering. And that's why we're so uncomfortable with each other, because they are, in a way, one human heart, and we're just one human protective function. We are the fight. And so we need to somehow start to identify with that missing chunk of ourselves, and they need to start to identify with this. It makes total sense to me that we feel uncomfortable with each other, because we use that, you know, our protection as children was to cut off that piece because it hurt. So of course it makes us feel terrible when we try to bring those pieces back in. Oh, and a, just a humorous note is you might be asking, well, what's left for fives? Well, guess what? They amputated both. Oh, <laughs> fives. They amputated both. Yeah. And so they just retreat into their mind. 
Anyway, I, I highly recommend looking into object relations. It's, uh, again, it's very academic, but it is a really intriguing psychological piece that is worth considering. Johanna was a strong kid. I met her when she was 11, going into her teenage years, and all I can really remember is besides the wild giggle that was just you could identify Johanna from an entire hall full of kids by the laughter uh, was just this sense of strength Uh, she was a beautiful artist and she was always drawing but what I seem to recall was conquest and pursuit of, of romantic ideals of heroes and dragons and power I think another word that would come to mind would be intense that no matter what Johanna did, there was an intensity to it, whether it was her own uh, physical sports kind of pursuits or just even control of her own body uh, as she was growing up. She had a very strong sense of style. You really got the sense that Johanna was going to do what Johanna wanted to do. Also fiercely protective of siblings and family. You you would not want to say something bad about her mom or dad or, you know, friends. She was very protective of, of people. Well, especially given my connection with her, which is through my daughter, Kate. Uh, she, she was a, a fierce friend. I would say growing up with Erin, you know, there are a couple things I remember being younger than her. She was always the boss. Erin took care of everything. I remember Erin also being the rebel. Uh, maybe it's the oldest child, I don't know, but I remember her distinctly taking my parents' car when they were away for a weekend out for a little joyride when she did not have a driver's license yet. So she was a rebel too, but I remember two things. She was always in charge and uh, she always had her own ideas of how things were going to go. How would you say you saw yourself as a kid? When you look back, who would you say you were? What kind of kid were you? So I don't know if it's just the story I've told myself, but I feel like I was a really happy kid. Most of my childhood was with all of my cousins. There was 18 of us. That was my childhood. It's just being with family all the time and feeling incredibly secure and loved. I just kind of did my own thing. Like we had a lot of freedom, my siblings and my cousins and I, and we we were creative. We built forts. We Do you relate to the self-orientedness of the type? I do. I think a lot of things went my way as a kid. I think looking back, I wouldn't have said that maybe a year or two ago, but I also think nobody cared to disagree. So we all just did the things I thought were awesome. However, I was also the one girl of like a bunch of boys. So a lot of the time the boys were doing their stuff and I just, I was just going to keep up. Um, But they, they appeased me a lot, my cousins. So I see a very big divide in myself. In my home life, I was wide open I was warm, wildly, giggly, happy, adventurous, just as open as one could be, full of life and energy and like nonstop adventures. I was the mover shaker, all of that. I was the one that led our whole neighborhood group of kids into all of the neighborhood adventures that we had. That was, that was my job, the initiator, the fuel, the fun, all of that. But I did not feel safe at my church and I didn't feel safe at certain friends' homes. And it was always the common denominator was that I knew that me as me was not welcome. I do have those memories. Okay. There are certain families I know that, yeah. And you were different there, right? I was not a loved person being there. So how did you change your behavior? I was quiet. I go five. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. So to me, church 
all I can see is my face, watchful, no speaking. Like mm-hmm. I have no memory of expressing myself. Really, truly. That's I really went sad. to church. I was like an, a quiet little watchful being. I'm so sad to think about that. That is sad. You were very boxed in there. The way I would define it is it was a head type church. You're a lot nicer than me. (laughs) I know. I'm trying to be technical instead of emotional about it. I see it as a place where people who are comfortable thinking about faith and thinking through the details of your faith really thrived. But anybody that wanted to really live it, embody it, and really believe that God worked uniquely in individuals and that it didn't have to look the same. It was very painful because yeah, no, cause that was not accepted. Exactly. And that's, of course, the way I think most of us eights who are, are people of faith experience God is as individuals, us and him, him and us, right? And then we live it out with everything we have. And it doesn't look the way it'll look for the person next to us. And, and we, we love that and celebrate that. So it was a very difficult place to be. Very difficult. And so that is an example of living in five. I lived in five the entirety of my being until adulthood when I started to push and fight and claw. And I became very disruptive there. And I had to leave because it wasn't healthy for me or them. Do you remember feeling divided as a child in your two different places? Like I never questioned who I was. I questioned whether, and I never questioned whether God loved me. I just wondered if he loved me in spite of who I was, or if he loved me because of all of my eight-ish ways, right? I would say I never questioned the integrity of who I was while I was there, which is part of the problem because they wanted me to. Right. They wanted me to adapt and shift and question. And I I wouldn't do it. It was just like school. I wouldn't become one of the mob. Mm -hmm. So it made me a nonconformist. I wasn't actively rebellious and pushing when I was little, but I just wouldn't go their way. And that was what created the divide. It's so interesting to me thinking back because you were picked on like crazy in the church. Like if someone could talk to you about your clothing choice or your behavior choice or your, why you? Because I don't know that I behaved a whole lot differently I think I, I probably was a little bit quieter. I didn't feel the need to say fuck you to everybody around mm-hmm. me, which I think you kind of... Well, remember, there's a combination me. of things, but your social first function means you always knew the temperature of the group, yeah. which means that you intuitively knew kind of how to blend in without losing your integrity, but you did have a way of blending in, no, you're right. whereas it was so impossible for me to do that. Right. That's where sexual types, sexual eights were really, really often picked on, so to speak, and cause more disruption because we do not understand the temperature of the group at all, right? It's a real disadvantage and a gift, but really a disadvantage, especially in a religious setting. I guess I take that for granted. Like when I walk in a room, I can kind of read the whole space of everybody and the way the room feels collaboratively at that moment. And I know how to adjust that or adjust myself. I'm oblivious. Yeah, that's so interesting. So I, I walk in and don't make any adjustments. I don't know how to make adjustments, right? And as a little kid, I, sh- I do now, it's but so I didn't. Funny. I don't even think about it. I know. It's such an interesting... Yep. Hmm. Yep. Which means you're more like a three than you want to think. Yeah. No, I know. There's, There's like a bit of a somewhere. natural mirroring, <laughs> for sure. So yeah, as a kid, I knew my lane and stuck to it. So I was, I was the athlete. I was the strong one. And in high school, I was the nonconformist. So we've talked about that. Um, I knew who my people were and stuck to them. And my people were people who loved me for me. 
mm-hmm. who love me without having to demand change or that I become smaller or less or something like that. So I always had one good friend at a time. I never had more than one at a time. Anytime I tried to do the group thing or even a a trio, it just didn't work. I couldn't hold all those dynamics. And so it was one loyal friendship at a time. And I would say on the whole, I had about four growing up, one to the other to the other. And those got me by. That's all I really needed. I had lots of friends growing up, but... You were the group girl. Yeah, I was, but... I always had one particular person by my side and that switched over time. I think probably depending on energy for me and what gave me energy and what took my energy, but I still do. I want to have a one, like if I'm going to a party or I want to have one person I can hone in on and know I can be real. Mm -hmm. We actually asked our friends and our family (laughs) to uh, send us voice notes about who they saw us to be as kids. So we just explained our sense of who we were, but it's really valuable to hear from other people. Um, So Erin got some notes from her cousins, her siblings. What did they tell you about you? Was there anything (laughs) new, (laughs) new information for you? Uh, I I don't think new, just just made me laugh because I forgot about a lot of things. But yeah, just just typical eight stuff, right? Like if there was any doubt in my mind that I was ever an eight as a child. (laughs) No, I I don't have that doubt anymore. But just, you know, I ran the show and organized things. And I think even thinking back to my sister in university, it kind of triggered that memory. Like I remember when, maybe not university, she must have been in high school and I had been moved out. And she would call me to say like, mom and dad won't let me go to this party or mom and dad won't, you know, pay for my nails to get done for prom or (laughs) whatever it was. And she always called me so that I would go to bat for her because I always knew, I always knew how to get what we wanted. I wanted to say manipulate, but it feels so selfish that I don't want to say manipulate. But I think we might have a way of making them see the what we want them to see and the importance. And that's what I did. I went back to my parents and said, this is important. This is why, you know, I could articulate it and fight for it. And she just got upset and it, it was stopped there kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Right. So. Mm-hmm. Manipulation is a word that they associate with eights that I really don't like. I don't like it. At all. And yet we have a way of making things happen. I don't, but I don't think it's the manipulate seems so. um, Sneaky. It's not just sneaky, but it seems very, um, I want to say inauthentic. Like it seems very selfish to me. Okay. Well, let's talk about my recordings because (laughs) that word kept coming up (laughs) over and over. Oh no. That's why I was asking you about it because um, in my recordings, over and over again, I was really thrilled to hear something that I, I forget about myself, which is that I laughed all the time. I oh. was so full of joy and life and laughter. It, I, and I can remember it as I'm hearing those recordings. It really was, I was known for it. I was known for this infectious, big, full-bodied laugh. And it came from a place of pure joy. And it always had to do with being in a safe place with my people and being uncontained and free and just like you can just picture me out in the sun (laughs) running through the neighborhood with my people and then the laugh would just come. So that was really beautiful to hear. And there was a lot of talk about my loyalty and protection and Again, I, I've forgotten that that is my way. It's it's so subconscious that I don't even know I'm doing it. It's so it. natural. I don't right? choose. That's what I mean. Yeah, it's not about, a choice. Yeah. Like, I will be loyal to you. I am committed. If you're in with me, you're just in. And I spend everything I have on you. Right? We, yeah. we love big. When you're in our circle, you are loved well. Absolutely. 
But the part that I knew was coming was selfish, selfish. Mm -hmm. And this is where my subtype really does have something to contribute here. I think subtypes are flexible, unlike your type, and you can move throughout your life from one to the other. So I believe that I was a self-preservation subtype when I was little, which makes a lot of sense given the trauma. So it really was all about me making sure that my little world was all in order and that it felt comfortable and my needs were all met. So it meant that, again, it wasn't even conscious. It was not, I want the bigger piece. There was something survival about it where I just immediately went for the best seat or the part of the bed, the the side of the bed that felt safer, whatever. It is so instinctive. But as a little kid, that for sure would have looked very selfish. And so that's, I happen to have friends that a lot of them were heart types. And so mm. their natural instinct was to give the best of everything away and, and to, to self abnegate. Right. And, and then I took it, it. And didn't offer it back. Exactly. Mm-hmm. I didn't have, um, I had maybe one friendship that was with another aggressive type. And that's where I almost feel like I came alive because they wouldn't let me take the best. And and that got kind of fun. Yeah, so I think I was seen as selfish. And it's a word that makes me shudder. Like, I hate that idea of being selfish. But I will temper it with what I believe is self-orientedness, which all eights are. That That is a term that you'd associate with us, which is that we intuitively know what we need and we go get it. With self-preservation types, that has a particular look to it because it involves lining up all of your personal comforts and, and whatnot really quickly and intuitively without even thinking about offering it sideways to someone else, right? <laughs> and then from that place, once we've made our cozy nest and whatnot, we spend everything on the people we love, yeah. but the order is off. Whereas yeah. other types would hand over everything immediately and then maybe not know what else was left to give. Yeah. So it's just an important qualification. We'll talk about that more some other time. But that was part of uh, the recordings that my family all sent in. We were kind of, we held each other at a bit of an arm's length until we were in high school. But I was aware of you and I knew who you were. And you were always distinct. So there was this sense of like, I'm not caving into a crowd. I'm my own person. And if you don't want to join me in my own personhood, then okay, fine. But I'm not pretending to be something else. And then in high school... I loved your confidence, so I was just drawn to your sense of like, precisely that, I am my own unique person and I have an identity and um, I'm free, I laugh so freely, so like I don't really care what other people think and I think that that was so compelling and attractive. Trying to figure out how the two of us interacted, I think I would have maybe called it selfish, like you were just, you knew your own stuff really, really well and were confident in bringing that up and bringing it to the table and I didn't know how to bring myself the same way. So, my name is Kirk. I'm Aaron's cousin. Uh, We saw a lot of each other growing up. So, Aaron was like a sister. Game we'd play is school. She'd have us set up chairs and desks and have us all doing crafts, and she would be the teacher. One day, my older brother Niels and I and her younger brother Dana thought about starting a boy band where we would lip sync to our favorite Beach Boy and other oldies songs. I remember her being upset as she wanted to join but we kept telling her it was a boy group so she came up with the idea that she would be our manager. Didn't think we really needed a manager but when we were ready for our first backyard concert uh, she was busy 
gathering our audience of neighborhood kids who she would charge 10 cents or a quarter for admission. That's it for today. We hope by now you've realized there's a lot more going on under the surface. And you'll continue to follow along as we take you inside the armor. <laughs>